Hi, welcome to another episode of Django Chats, podcast on the Django Web Framework. I'm Carlton Gibson, joined as ever by Will Vincent. Hi, Carlton. Hello. Hello, Will. Sorry, I would say hello, but I thought you were going to jump in without me there. And then we're, this week we're joined with Mark. Um, Mark, Mark Smith, who's otherwise known as Judy Coote 2K for no reasons we won't go into. But Mark, well, thank you for coming on. Lovely to see you. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's good. Um, right, so who are you? That's what we always ask. Um, and, you know, what's your story? What's your who backstory? Who am I? Like? I'm an imposter. Yeah. Like, why am I here? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah. Why are you on a Django podcast Django, right? when you work for MongoDB? Let's start with that. Well, there yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have been a Django developer. So, you know, I spoke at the last DjangoCon Europe. I'm a co-chair of this year's DjangoCon Europe, which is being hosted in Edinburgh in May, uh, May 29th to June the 2nd. Um, so that's pr- kind of primarily my link to Django. Um, and one of the things that I'm I'm kind of hosting conversation around is kind of how you should use MongoDB with Django and what we can do at MongoDB to kind of make Django work better with MongoDB for the people that want to do that. So let's dive into that because that's quite an interesting question because like I would imagine... So if I'm going to sit down today and I'm not going to ask you, I'm just going to go, right, Django view layer, Django view layer, and then I'm going to go MongoDB, whatever interface you give me, you know, the, you know where you do the queries in there. But I'm not going to have much integration with, say, for instance, the ORM or, you know, any of those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, you're going to miss a lot, I think, if you do that. I think that's that's the big tension here is that Django is, uh, has a heavy model as it were, you know, there's a lot going on in the model there. Um, and that is highly intertwined with the relational model. I, there's no real real getting away from it. The, the, the um, Django model is, is a SQL generator at the end of the day. And MongoDB, we have a SQL interface, but it's really designed for analytics. It's not really designed for sort of production use in a, in a transactional application. So uh, they just don't really quite fit. And there have been a, a few attempts to build libraries to bridge that gap. There's Django, which sort of still exists, but I don't think has had any releases in a while. Um, and there was something before, which I forget the name of. It was Django NoRel or something like that. Oh, really? What's it called? Was I don't it? remember well, that one. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe I don't remember it. There was one which was built originally around um, Google App Engine and their data store. But I think there were backends for various of the non-relational. I don't yeah, know. I, and that doesn't really work because they don't. You're right. Yeah. Generally, <laughs> you know, they don't have the same structure or the same query language or anything like that. So it's a nice idea, but you're going to be building kind of several query generators that don't work. You know, they. There's, there's only going to be a subset of features there that actually overlap. So there's only going to be amount, a certain amount of interface you can really expose. So, so let me ask you a naive question, right? So if I ran into a DjangoCon and my boss tells me we're using MongoDB and Django, I don't know why, I'm just a Django developer. I Google Django and MongoDB and I get this Django integration with MongoDB page, which is um, well laid out. But there's three options. It's not clear to me which like con- to connect. Like, What would you say? What, what if I ran you in the hallway and said... Help me, my boss is crazy. I just need a prototype, something to to get you know him or her off my back. What what do I do? Uh, well, firstly, it's not crazy. Like, it's not actually a crazy idea. <laughs> yeah, okay. to use. Fair like, enough. Django sorry, sorry for the so bias much there. Functionality. 
No, no, no. It's a, but it has so much functionality, Django. You definitely want to use Django, right? I'm a big, big fan of Django. Um, but the the big model of kind of um, building a Django app at high level is to use apps, which are sort of big vertical slices, including everything from views to sort of business logic to, to through to the model layer. Um, so those aren't really going to work with MongoDB very well. There are these adapters, and I think the page on mongodb.com talks about, it does talk about Django, I think is the second one. Um, it also talks about Mongo Engine, which is uh, what we call an ODM, uh, which is actually a bit like what the Django model layer um, is. It's it's an adapter between Python classes and and in this case a Mongo MongoDB database, um, but it's not Django compatible. So you can't just use all the models that you're getting with the various apps that you're sort of building your your application with. Um, they're they're not going to store save in MongoDB, but like you can use those apps on top of a relational database like Postgres, and you can then use MongoDB alongside that. So you're not, it's not going to be tightly integrated with Django, but you get everything that you like with Django, um, like authentication, um, Django REST framework, perhaps like, you know, you, all those components, but you also get this database that sits alongside that has this flexible document model that allows you to embed hierarchical data all in the same place, and then allows you to kind of drill down into that data to query it and bring it back. So if I was going to do this, I would think just like a priori, I'd go for Mongo, the Mongo ODM and use that. That would be my go-to option because I think surely that's the, that's the most supported. That's the one with all the features. That's the... Um, yeah, you know, I wouldn't even use that. I would go straight for Ooh. the Python driver. Um, that is, that is <laughs> first, in fairness. That's number one. And it's, it says like, you know, standard Python. Oh, does it? Oh, yeah, yeah. PyMongo. Py I've, I've got the page up now. Um, so yeah, that's that's exactly what I would use. It's it's going to hand you back. It, it, each document is just going to be a dict containing um, Python core types and lists and and whatever. So it's just like a, it's relatively low level. Um, and then I might use something to map those data structures into classes, sort of separately to MongoDB. The problem is, right, if you use an ODM, they don't expose all of the function functionality of MongoDB. We've got this really powerful query language um, that allows you to do things like aggregations. Um, it allows you to be, you know, the document structure is quite flexible. So you can store documents that have no relationship to each other all in the same place. So they don't have the same structure. So trying to map those into classes on the client side, just like that's going to force you to store the same schema in a collection. And it's not going to give you that flexibility of having um, sort of different versions of a schema in a collection or slightly different structure. Like if you've got a metadata section, for example, each of those documents is going to have a different structure. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, th I think sort of, working starting with an ODM sort of puts the gives you the wrong mindset gives you the idea that every every document in a collection is going to have the same schema and it gives you the idea that only the the sort of functions that the ODM exposes into the query language are the way those are the only way you can look up documents um and uh, neither of those things are true so so would i then because cloud atlas is the the hosted hosting provider that mongo has would i then i guess i would put the mongo piece on there and i could have my Django and Postgres on, you know, my post Heroku option. If I'm just, you know, spinning something up, how would I, yeah. How would I do that? <laughs> um, so you're still going to have to host Django yourself. Um, we don't, we, 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 and it's MongoDB Atlas. I think cloud Atlas is a book. It is. I thought um, I saw, is that by David? Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, it's quite a, uh, yeah. Well, it, 
not it the is, comedian. It is Atlas in the cloud, but yes, I misspoke. <laughs> um so yeah that that is our that's how we make money from mongodb right mongodb is open source you can install it on your own machines if you want to but it's distributed by default you need three nodes if you want full redundancy it's a pain to host yourself um and most people actually want to build their application so instead they ask us to host mongodb for them Uh, we can save some money um by uh, it on you know in development environments and things like that you can you can use what's a shared tier so that's a bit like a, a vm Right. So we, we host the three nodes, but we're hosting databases for um, uh, various different companies on the same set of three nodes. So it just saves some costs when you're starting out. As you scale up, you're going to want a dedicated instance. So you have you understand your performance a bit better and um, and things like that. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it sort of scales with you. Um, so that's where you keep your data. Um, and then, yeah, I would, the other thing is it's hosting on the cloud provider of your choice. So we, in Atlas, you can spin up a database on, um, three EC2 instances, um, on AWS, or you can host it on Google or, uh, Microsoft. Um, that's a bit like crunchy with Postgres too. Sorry. Anyways, you. No, no, we, no, we, we had Craig, I've got my mind You don't have, Craig Craig Kirsten's on it. Yeah. You host, was that what you were going to say, Carlton? I'm sorry. No, I was going to ask a really sort of technical question there. If so, I've, if I'm on AWS, I'm saying I've got a virtual private cloud which is firewalled from the um, internet. Can I deploy it inside my VPC, or is it kind of? Uh, n- no, I've I've actually I've forgotten. I've got a a, a brain freeze. Um, yeah, yeah there, okay. there's a terminology for kind of opening up like to a VPC, like sort of connecting mm-hmm. two VPCs together, and we allow you can do that, but right. you can't actually so, host it inside oh, your own. Okay, no, but that's equivalent, right? Because it's firewalled. So you can only communicate to instances from that particular VPC. Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. Well, um, Atlas reminds me, and you might appreciate this, that back, I think 2015, 16, I spent a good two years on a startup. We used Meteor, which was a, a framework with MongoDB that was going to make all its money uh, well, it was VC founded, VC funded open source f- framework. So that, so they were like, we'll just make money on hosting. And then Atlas came in, among other things. And it was kind of like, yeah, I think it's still around. But um, it was this magical experience back then, because one line, like I taught a university course using it one line, and it just installed uh, Mongo and everything locally, you could de- deploy it, it had authentication, it was like incredibly magical. I remember getting some getting some shirts from this <laughs> from their headquarters in San Francisco, but um, they were, you know, yeah, hosting is the way to make money. I mean, someone should do it. Someone someone yeah, should do a Django hosting you know, we'll have to product, Carlton. But uh, anyways, no, I'm remembering but, uh, back seven yeah, years, I yeah, saw Atlas came out. I was just like, yeah, okay, they're totally toast now. Unfortunately, because it was very cool tech. Um, it's yeah, I mean, that's it. It's it's always a shame when something like that sort of goes away. I mean, um, I think it's still around, but because, it's like no one's using it. But it was it was the hotness for you know for a while yeah but there was m labs as well that offered mongodb hosting so maybe slightly less innovative but you know they did production level sort of cloud hosting of mongodb and we acquired them um which was incredibly useful to us because because we were scaling up atlas um really fast at that point and so it was it was really helpful to have some people with the experience of kind of hosting those clusters and building those interfaces on top of them so while we're on mongo i just like i saw you give a talk well, I didn't see you give a talk. I saw the talk go past on social media and I was like, oh, I should watch that. But it was about like everything you know about Mongo or something is wrong. Because yes. I, you know, I used Mongo a long time ago and we hosted it ourselves and we had nothing but trouble and we lost data at times and things like that. And that, But that was obviously a long time ago. And then you gave this this talk about modern 
um, Mongo. So just in case there's folks like me, old codgers like me, who are listening to the... Um, to I the wrote Mongo. that talk for me. It was right. like, I wrote that talk because those were the misconceptions that I had originally before I kind of got up to date with MongoDB. So yeah, you mentioned losing data. That's one of the things that I talk about um, in that talk. Um, it was, it made me item two or something. Um, and it, 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 people did lose data, but they lost data because they, uh, the default for your, you've got your three nodes that you're storing data in um, and you're actually talking to one of them uh, and then it streams the data to the secondary nodes um, so that's how you keep your redundancy and allow zero time upgrades and things like that but the uh, right uh, consistency was one by default so um, it you would get a response saying yeah we've got your data as soon as that first machine had it and it wouldn't have journaled it or anything like that so it really only had it in memory um, and then if your machine if that node crashed then your cluster would stay up because you'd switch over to one of the secondaries, but that data would never have been streamed to any of the secondaries. So we've recommended for absolutely years that you use the right consistency of majority, which means that however many nodes, you've now got over half of them um, and are now up to date with your new data before you get an acknowledgement that that data has been stored. And that also journals the data as well. That just like magically switches on the journal flag at the same time. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it, that's not the case anymore. So the now I think we changed it two years ago. Um, the default is now majority. So by default, MongoDB is now slightly slower than it was before because it's now making sure that that data is stored across multiple nodes before it goes. Yep, your data's your data's safe now. Um, so, so yeah, it's you know I I have this slightly uh, trite phrase which is MongoDB is too easy. <laughs> it's because people don't read the documentation. They don't need to. Um, they just pick it up and they can immediately start storing their data in it. They don't need to worry about how they model the data for efficiently looking it up again. And they often they never learn. Um, and so a lot of my job really is taking these people who go, yeah, I just saw, I just get my JSON and I just store it in a database um, and it's great. And it's like, well, it's great now. Now, but it's not going to be great when you've got lots of data or lots of users because that's going to be really slow. Um, right, and that's that's like the you know the the quick take on uh, uh, non relational is you know it doesn't scale, and so but that's coming from you know if you're just dumping your JSON to begin with, how could it scale? Yeah, and we see that all the time. Um, so it, yeah, it's a it's a different way of modeling your data, and there's a different set of skills there. So much as um, optimizing a relational database is a set of skills that you either learn over time or you read up on, um, it's, uh, yeah, we, we have documentation on the MongoDB website about various different sort of common problems that you see and and how you can model your data to get around those problems. Um, so that, that was the ultimate thing. The end of everything you know about MongoDB is wrong. Like the conclusion was MongoDB isn't actually easy to use. Like, I don't really like to say that it's not easy to use, but MongoDB, like any database, it, especially any big general purpose database, like just has a lot to learn. And you should go on that journey. You know, you shouldn't just um, finish with CRUD because then the database isn't really going to serve your needs. It's no different with Postgres, right? You get to a certain size above what, you, what you've got in local development. All of a sudden it matters what indexes you've got and it matters, you know, that you thought about them and, that, and looked at what was slow and optimized. And it's going to be yeah, the same. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be the same. Well, I know we just dove into it. I'm, I'm curious since this is the first time I've met you, like, yeah, how did you get into coding? Like, you know, could and for listeners, you know, what's what's uh, do you have a formal education? Carlton and I do not. You know what? You know, no, no, I don't. I'm a university dropout. 
Um, there you go. Funny nice. enough, I was listening to your podcast from a couple of weeks ago with David Kramer, um, who's a friend yeah. of mine, and that was how I found out that he dropped out as well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> through through the podcast. Um, so uh, yeah, I uh, my my dad bought a BBC Micro uh, when I was nine. Um, so that was my first introduction to programming, um, basically copying programs out of books uh, and then getting absolutely infuriated when they didn't work, uh, which was sometimes down to a typo in the books. <laughs> but, yeah. But, you know, as often as not, like I wasn't a very good typist at nine. Um, and so that was often my own fault. Uh, like, f- No, I want to tell you a story when I was doing such like, very, very beginning on, I don't know, some old AM show and I was typing it out. And then all of a sudden it just sort of stopped. It wouldn't let me um, type anymore because I'd reached the end of the character buffer. Because instead of opening a t- <laughs> in, in, instead of opening a text file and entering in a text file, then I was just typing it at the at the line. It was like, no, you can only enter two hundred and fifty six characters. Because uh, that so that was like my first sort of I'm a beginner of absolute brick wall barrier, which I had to get some advice about getting over. And it was difficult to get advice in those days. You know, no internet. Uh, I, I mean, I grew up in Dubai as well. So it was like we didn't even really have very good bookshops. So I'd have to wait till we went on holiday to the UK and then go through the, go around the bookshops in, in the UK. So, yeah, it was, life was harder back then. It's, uh, we should do a sketch, the Yorkshireman sketch or something like that. Yeah, you, yeah, when you I was young. Um, so, yeah, like fast forward. I did. I studied computer science um, at high school. Um and found that re- very rewarding that for whatever reason, my school really focused on multimedia stuff. That was a big buzzword at the time, like pre-internet. So it did lots of graphical things and really at one point wanted to be an animator rather than a programmer. Um, but I also like making things interactive, which which is where the programming really came in. Uh, went to university, dropped out of university, got a job as a Java programmer. Um, it wasn't quite that straightforward, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's what happens. Um, and spent many years uh, as a Java programmer. Um, there was one. I, I was the CTO of a company called E Street in London at one point. Um, it was very big in in London and sort of all the major UK cities. Um, and spent a lot of time building ETL systems because we we gathered data on kind of shops and nightclubs and bars in London, and then we had to get it into the database. So I, I built lots of ETL scripts to translate the data and put it into MySQL, um, initially in Perl, um, and, and actually loved Perl. Like it's such an expressive language, but it, it it's always it's got that problem where you come back to it a day later and you're in a different headspace and so suddenly the code doesn't make sense anymore because you you modeled directly what was in your head the previous day in into characters my favorite um, description of that was write only programming language yes <laughs> yes <laughs> um and uh, yeah, so at some point I started looking around for another language because I realized Java was a bad language for ETL because it's just there was just too much to the type system got in the way there was a lot of typing involved it was i needed sort of quick and dirty stuff to to munch data um and so i looked at perl i looked at python which was like pretty new at the time this was the late 90s um and as soon as i came across the fact it was indented i went no i'm gonna check out this ruby thing instead right good (laughs) And it was super early days and all the documentation for Ruby was in um, Japanese, uh, except for um, Ruby in a nutshell from O'Reilly. So so I got myself a copy of that and it was just too slow. It was before, I think they've got a JIT now, um, but it was it was really slow at that point in time. And so I sort of had to revisit Python. Um, 
and get over the whole significant indentation thing. And it took two days. You know, two days later, I'm already kind of um, sticking in an if if uh, if line if expression. If statement, it's an if statement, isn't it? And then indenting the code that I'd already written underneath it to put it inside that if block and going, oh, this is really elegant. Actually, it's like I don't need to go and put that curly brace at the bottom or whatever. It's um, so, yeah, that was was one of those points of just sort of instant bias that I had. Just like, oh, I'm not not going with an indented language. Um, So, yeah, but after that, I was still mainly coding in Java in my day job. And um, that company um, went bankrupt and I moved into another, started doing life sciences stuff for a few years, also Java-based. Couldn't persuade any company that I worked for to actually invest in Python, like switch over. I would would build prototypes in my own time and bring them into work. And it's like, look how much better this is in Django than it is in um, Spring. and uh, no, yeah, it, it was it was too big a cost, right? Like rewriting things that exist is is um, too big. So I carried on as a Java developer for many years, and then I uh, and there were no Python jobs, right? They just didn't exist. There were no, they certainly weren't advertised. And then one day I saw a contract for a Python developer being advertised, and I'd seen a few go past, and I just thought, you know, I could do that. I could actually switch from being a Java programmer to doing my hobby as a full-time job. So I went for the interview, um, got the job, um, and on my first day being shown around the company, um, I was introduced to somebody in the corridor. Oh, as this is this is Mark, our new Python expert. <laughs> it was like my first day as a, as a Python developer. Um, and the person responded with, um, oh, that's good. I'm glad we're investing in the Python stuff because they were doing a lot of MATLAB at the time. Uh, and they said, would you be interested in training all of our MATLAB developers in Python? So like day one of the job, I agreed to, to retrain all the software developers in Python. Well, you're, um, you're still on trial, you know, that first three months, it's, you've got to agree yeah. to everything. <laughs> no, but that, uh, isn't that what like, you know, being an expert in quotes is, is like, you're like, I don't know anything, but you look around, you're like, I seem to know more than they do. So I guess I'm the expert. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I ran a three-day training course, um, retrained a lot of the developers. They dropped MATLAB, um, so it was a big success. But I did a lot of learning in a very short space of time. Um, you know, yeah. it's a, a real crucible for uh, for sort of learning Python. Um, I set up the Edinburgh Python User Group at the same time, um, and that's that's been a big uh, a big thing for me. Like over time, just. Uh, learning new skills. I, I was very much a heads down developer um, and it, running that group and occasionally giving a talk or introducing a speaker or something like that. Um, uh, and just learning people's names. Like, that was a thing that I decided I was going to do from the, from day one was like every, every time we get somebody new, I'm going to introduce myself to them and I'm going to learn their name so that when they come back, they feel welcome. Um, and that was just that was a really big thing for me and actually really tough. Like Learning people's names is really hard. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I then got hired away to Skyscanner. I built their first Django site, which was called uh, Skyscanner is a flight meta search engine. You may have used it. It's, um, it, it, it searches all the different airlines directly, you, often by scraping their sites, um, to get you kind of the cheapest deal, um, on a flight from one place to another. Um, and they were trying to branch out, so, but they wanted to get into ski holidays. So people would put together their own ski holiday, including like flights and accommodation and transport. Um, and so we built this thing called Snow Scanner in Django because they were they they were very much a C sharp shop, but they wanted to they wanted the benefits of writing Python stuff because they thought it was faster. Um, and uh, so it, we kind of proved that actually uh, in a few weeks. 
uh, sadly, nobody ever bought any ski holidays, so uh, the site isn't there anymore. It's uh, yeah, it was it was a big failure commercially, but technically very successful. It's just perfectly built. (laughs) (laughs) So what you said that uh, you found. the type system getting in the way with Java, which leads me to one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, was you've recently been programming more in Rust, and I wanted to just pick your yeah. mind on Rust. Wait, 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 wait. I wanted I wanted to get up to the to today. Well, oh, go, on. Go, on. go on. Um, then we can so talk yeah, about stubs and types. And yeah, all I that. I moved from Skyscanner to Fanduel. Um, oh which yeah, will will yeah, you may have heard of them. Um, they I do a lot of know, behind the scenes. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, friend of one of my daughter's dad is the C- was the CEO is the CEO of that or the other one here in Boston and yeah oh if it's Boston then it's their competitor DraftKings oh. um, okay DraftKings <laughs> sorry um but yeah uh, FanDuel is a weird one because it's a uh, it was founded in Edinburgh so founded in Scotland but oh, I didn't oh, all okay. of the business is done in the US and they have a head office in New York now um but uh, yeah, it's actually one of three companies that I've worked for that have been kind of split between Edinburgh and New York for some reason specifically that like those two cities. Um, but that, that was really fun. I learned a lot about building scalable Python software there. Um, and then one day I this advert came up on a local tech mailing list for a developer advocacy role because I'm a developer advocate these days rather than a software, a software developer, sort of pure software developer. Um, and it just listed, it was a terrible job advert because it had sort of a, a bullet point list of sort of 24 different skills that they wanted you to have. Um, everything from public speaking to uh, writing blog posts, documentation, writing code in multiple languages, ideally. And it just went on and on and on. And, but as, and any normal person would have been completely put off by this. And instead, I'm reading it thinking, this just describes me. It's like it, they've just listed every single thing that I enjoy doing. Um so that was my big, I moved to Vonage or Nexmo. Uh, they were acquired by Vonage um, uh, at that point. And that was my, my big switch to developer advocacy. And then I got, I got hired away to MongoDB a few years ago, just at the start of COVID, which is a terrible time to join a new company as a developer advocate. Well, yeah, because the job is flying around the world giving talks at conferences, but in part, right? I, that's a common misconception. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's, I... I um, I sort of someone someone recently wrote that uh, developer advocacy is a function, not a role. So it's uh, the idea being that a single person can't do all of advocacy. So it does involve flying to conferences and speaking um, and being part of the developer community. But really, our job is to act as developers on the border of, in MongoDB's case, in on the border of the company and. Um, and uh, uh, the developers who use our product. So we act as customers to our our engineers internally, and we act as sort of um, technical representatives of MongoDB to people outside uh, the company, so in in the community. Uh, And that does take, that is, there's a lot to that. So some of it is going to conferences and speaking, just to get to know people. Basically, uh, speaking at a conference kind of gives you permission to be part of that community and then have conversations with people. I always think those one-on-one conversations or conversations in small groups are the advocacy bit, like the actual public speaking from a stage. I don't consider that really to be advocacy. It's 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 like the key that sort of unlocks the door. 
um, as it were. But yeah, I do. I write documentation. Um, I write blog posts. I act, act as a sort of consultant internally. I'm acting as a consultant to the team that write our keynotes um, at the moment. So it's a big multi-month project to write our keynote for a big conference that we're hosting um, in New York later in the year, probably. Um, and and they need to make sure the technical language is correct. And they also kind of want to know what developers find exciting about MongoDB. So it's kind of my job to to build that part of the story that we're going to tell. Um, so that's that's a, again, that's a new skill set for me. So that's quite exciting. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, the original question was, wasn't that difficult <laughs> doing developer advocacy when I couldn't fly anywhere? Well, that, uh, certainly the flying around bit sounds difficult. So yeah, I, that was happened? the big bit that changed. I did a lot more stuff online. Um, I gave a few talks uh, over Zoom, um, which I mean, I got a lot better at. But uh, and I bought this nice microphone that I'm speaking into now. Uh, but it's so thankless. I I tend to write slightly silly talks, like talks that have a bit of a punchline <laughs> or something like that. And telling a joke over Zoom where you can't see a single other face is like it's like laughing at your own jokes. You sort of you pause, hoping that other people are sniggering at the joke you've just told, but you have no idea. I still have no idea. <laughs> Well, it's a little bit. It's a little bit like writing. Like um, you gotta, you know, you gotta put some things in there to keep yourself sane. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I've, as a side note, one of the things Carlton has introduced me to is the London Review of Books, which I just love, 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 because they just, you know, we're on the. I, I don't know if we know if we can repeat the line, but we were flying out to DjangoCon US and there was just this offhand remark about who you know who knows what passes for Oscar worthy contender these days, but if I won't say it, but you know, it was just this, you know, very UK, very straight laced, disgusting, vulgar thing that you know the writer just slipped in for themselves. And now Carlton and I just trade quotes from the each piece because there's a couple that you know the the writer just has to put in for themselves. So it's you know it's valid. I I, I am another person that Carlton has got into the London Review of Books. <laughs> so I feel part of an a, an elite club now. Yeah, yeah. Listeners, you should definitely subscribe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's tough when you don't get a um, response for it. So uh, yeah, I mean that was that was the main difference, and I went slightly slightly mad with the lack of social interaction. I'm a highly social person, and um, just just generally, it was a very difficult time. Um, so it's nice to be able to get out into the community, um, or in the case of JangaCon Europe, have the community come to me. That's yeah, it's a nice plus of hosting. It's that's the upside to all of the work that's involved with uh, with chairing a conference. <laughs> but I mean, you so go on. Let's talk about. Um, Jank on York. So it's in it's at the end of May, you said? Yeah, 29th of May. Um running for five we got three days of the main conference track with the with talks and workshops, uh, and then two days of sprints afterwards. Uh it's hosted in the assembly rooms, which is this amazing old um assembly hall um in the center of the city. It's beautiful, like these amazing um uh, chandeliers and things like that inside. Um, we've got a great sponsors hall. Like uh, usually, the sponsors get these dark, oppressive spaces with no daylight. Um, and given that that's something I have done for a living, is sort of stand up booths. It's like made sure that we've got a good room with lots of light. So, so um, none of this will put the sponsors in the dungeon stuff. No, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've I've been one of those dungeon creatures before. Um, 
And just this amazing hall. Um, I, Colton, you were there when I announced uh, DjangoCon Europe and showed the photo of the, the big hall um, that we just, just want to fill with people, basically. So that's the CFP is open now. I should point that out. CFP is open uh, until I think the 26th of February. So we've got, got so basically a month. And who, who should submit a uh, proposal for a talk? Uh, very tempted to just say everybody. Good. <laughs> but it's... Uh, I, the, it's always important to say, like, it doesn't matter what level you're, of skill you have with Django. Uh, it, 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 we need introductory level talks for the people who come to the conference who aren't ja- yet Django experts, because that, you need that whole level, set of levels, those steps, stepping stones to expertise um, so that everybody can feel included in the conference. So very keen to get all different sets of um, sort of levels of skill in Django. Um, but also any kind of talk that would be of interest to a Django community. So if there's talks about like um, some sort of technique for managing your time um, or getting over stage fright or, you know, whatever it might be, like we, we just want to see those those kinds of talks. Um, we're just going to fill it with a, with a whole whole bunch of different talks that will be useful to Django developers. Yeah, I mean, one, one of the big things I always say about DjangoCon and the lineup is that it's not just technical talks. Technical talks are a big chunk and a big part of it. But I mean, I remember my first... Um, Django in Europe in Florence and it, I, it wasn't the technical talk. I don't I, I could probably dig out the de- uh, oh yeah that technical talk if I really thought about it but the ones that really stayed with me were the community talks or the ones on you know non-technical topics like you know cognitive biases there was one that was just you know those are the ones that really change your life aren't yeah they? no those it really ones that was. Make, make you think yeah. differently and that's that's really important so um yeah very keen to get those kinds of talks in so if anybody who's listening to this has a talk like that um, or has seen a talk like that and they think it would be a good fit, like get that speaker to get in touch with us because um, we, would, we would love to have that talk at, at DjangoCon. Well, th- this will be in the notes, but I believe in 2020 you gave a talk on like how to get on the stage giving a talk, which lays out the whole process for people. Yeah, you know. I, ironically, that was the first year it was run remote. So I gave a talk called How to Get on This Stage over Zoom from, from my living room. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, that's that a very good resource, though. I think, you know, for someone who hasn't done it before, just laying out the process and yeah, people we, should watch We actually that. have a link to that video from the CFP page, which I feel slightly guilty about because it's like linking to my own talk uh, on the DjangoCon website. Um, but uh, the previous organizers of DjangoCon put that video in there and I thought, you know what? It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a nice, it's a helpful introduction um, to kind of how you put a talk together, how you even apply to a conference to give a talk. Um I I had this amazing experience this year in Porto where I I got my badge for the conference, uh, walked inside um, and they had some stickers to decorate your badge with. So I was just kind of looking at these stickers on the table and there was a guy on the other side of the table was looking at me a bit awkwardly, sort of smiling at me. Um, It seemed friendly, uh, but it was a little bit unnerving. And I was in full on like, uh, I, I find... I, like anybody, I find socialising at conferences uh, slightly awkward, but I've been to enough now where I can kind of force myself to overcome it. So I stuck out my hand and said, hi, I'm Mark. Who are you? <laughs> and, uh, and he said, oh, I actually know who you are. Um, I, the reason I'm here is because I watched your video on how to get on this stage and I wrote my first talk or I applied to give my first talk here and I'm going to be giving a talk tomorrow and it's all down to your video. Thank you very much. And it was like, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> That's that's why you give those talks because you know in some way they change people's lives. He could be a developer advocate in five years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think people should should take that next step and reach out to someone if they see a talk. I mean, 
the very first interaction Carlton and I had, he gave a talk on how to grow old Gracely's developer. And I, I believe I just cold emailed you. I, I, I do this all the time, like, because I've given talks. And so I know nobody emails you <laughs> about it. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's like, it's so nice, you know, so I emailed him. And then at DjangoCon US, my very first conference, he was there and like, there was a pre-existing connection, you know, so like, here's a pro tip. If someone gives a talk, they're open to you emailing them. You know, like yeah. if they didn't want to be contacted, they wouldn't give a talk. Yeah, that's very true. I uh, I love it. I, I don't very often get feedback on the talks, but when I do, it's just, yeah, it makes it all worthwhile. Because, um, you know, it's a, it's a time-consuming process, putting together a talk. Um, yeah, it is. Practicing it. <laughs> Wait, can I, 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 I want to get to Russ, but can I just ask, so what is the... Um, like, what is the, I was trying to explain this to my wife, what is the etiquette around? So if you're giving one to two talks a month, is it like one talk per calendar year? Is it a 12-month rotating cycle? Like, how does that w work, right? Because obviously you can't ha give a new talk every time. Like, what's the, like... Yeah, that's true. Well, firstly, I don't, like, there's there's two waves of conferences in the year. One's in kind of late spring and the other one's the end of the summer. Um, and that's when I'll be doing, like, have in the past done kind of one to two talks uh, a month. Um, the rest of the year is actually much quieter. Fortunately, everything kind of mm. dies down around the winter time usually. Um, but it, yeah, I, I tend to write a new, I, I before I started professionally speaking, um, I used to write one talk per year and give it once, which is an incredible amount of work to do to then get on a stage once. But like, you know, I, it, I gave the talk because I was part of the Python community and felt I had something to say. Um, and I kind of follow a similar um, pattern now. It's like I tend to write a new talk when I have something to say. I'm currently putting together a talk on exception handling because I think I have some useful views on that. Um, and But I... And when I don't feel I have a fresh enough talk to give, then I just won't be applying to CFPs because nobody wants to see me give the same talk at, at yet another conference or to come back and give a very similar talk the next year or something like that. So it's it's really fortunately I'm in the position where my employer doesn't want me to burn my bridges with the community by giving bad sort of low quality talks. And so they allow me to sort of work on these things at my own pace. I have colleagues who write new talks all the time. Um, and and they're amazing at it, but they obviously have more inspiration or maybe more experience than I do um, at this kind of thing. So uh, yeah, it's we're all different. Everybody in this in developer relations. I'm I'm very much like it's a it's getting blood from a stone. It's like squeezing it out. It's really hard. It's like you know I can write one, but that's it. Like yeah. you know, th th there's going to be twelve months before another one might appear. <laughs> like I think I usually write two or three new talks a year. Um, and then I'll usually give those talks maybe four or five times over the course of about, um, two years, three years. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a talk that I wrote a few years ago called stupid things I've done with Python, um, which is a bunch of hacky tricks with Python, um, told with a straight face. And, um, I, I, it keeps getting accepted for conferences and I, I, I sort of submit it as a, as a black sheep kind of like I'll, I'll submit two serious talks and then the stupid Python talk and they keep accepting the stupid Python talk. And it's now got to the point where I can't give that talk anymore because <laughs> it's just, it's, you know, it's been recorded. It's on YouTube. Um, that is one of the talks that people give me feedback on. 
um, usually complimentary. Like it was funny, not useful, <laughs> but it was funny. Oh no! Well, I like how you said. I I think I I saw that. I think one of the more recent ones you've you've given it a bunch, and you said like this is just the data model docs page. By the way, if you actually read it, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that is actually that's part of that talk. Um, I I love the Python data model. It's just it was a revelation to me that you could kind of um, lift up the lid on Python and start rummaging around inside and just sort of put things back in a slightly different order. Um, so can I ask? Because I love it as well, and I love um, you know just making an object respond to the dictionary interface so that it can just go in. And, you know, it's a it's your own custom class, but so all of a sudden it's it's interchangeable with the dictionary. And then yeah. one of the things that sort of come out with the introduction of type hinting is that all of a sudden it's it's like you can't pass that object anymore because it got ruled out as, you know, unacceptable. And Yeah. What's your thought there? Because it's... That wasn't a question. No. What's, what, <laughs> no emote with me. <laughs> like, yeah. What's going on? Um, I, yeah, I think... Um, when you abuse an interface like that, um, it, it, putting my serious face on, um, then you're going to get unexpected behavior as things kind of get tightened, tightened up. Um, you know, if, if you're using something for something it's not meant to, then you're not going to be taken into consideration when somebody goes, you know what, we should make this safer in some way, like by locking down the types that can be passed in or something like that. Um, so it's really... Uh, yeah, it's like, I find it fun when you can stick a sort of proxy around something. So you've got a dictionary, but you say wants it to be case insensitive. So you stick a wrapper around a dict and then you just make everything lowercase when it goes in. Um, but you can still make it look like a normal dict, which is like really cool, actually, because there's lots of languages you can't do that with. Um, but then when you start using, I'm, I'm trying to say, oh, I mean, I've used the subtraction operator to make a, a suffix. Like That was my big joke in uh, stupid python tricks was i've got this suffix of ish and you can you can subtract it from true so you get true hyphen ish but it's actually a minus and so it's using dunder sub behind the scenes um to return a kind of another object called a truish that uh, that does fuzzy matching on other types uh, and it turns out it's quite fun and it, it, in Somebody suggested that that could actually be useful in um, testing, for example. So you can have a sort of a fuzzy number. Um, yeah, within and then a it, range. It just, yeah, so if you've got 2.5-ish, that'll match 2.51 and 2.49 or something like that. And it's, um, you know, it's, I, I'm not convinced it's actually a good idea, but it's, it's a fun thing. <laughs> it's a fun thing that you can do. It's a weird, I, I show that as an almost an aside after the main sort of trick uh, in the talk and at that one there's always somebody in the audience going ah right, quick, <laughs> quickly writing notes um, yeah and this is the problem with like teaching these tricks with a straight face is at some point somebody's going to take you seriously <laughs> instead of going oh this is terrible with their head in their hands it's um yeah it's a uh, uh, negative <laughs> probably <laughs> well that, that that reminds me i i heard this this weekend um so this is a joke one of my kids told me like what do you call fish with no eyes <laughs> so when you're saying that, I was like, I can't. <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, Rust. Let's have, we're we're coming up. Yeah, you know, we're forty minutes in. Like, so the last couple of years you've been programming less in Python and more in Rust. You've all yeah, yeah. That's so. How that's fair? How would it? How no, no. What's what's your take on Rust and why is it so hard? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it's so hard. Why can't we have nice things, Carlton? Yeah. 
Okay, um, I've got a take on why it's so hard. It's because it doesn't pretend to work. It doesn't pretend it's working. Right? Yeah, so, that's a really good, really good summary. Um, did you will? So we were part of a like a Rust chat group for Django developers at one point, weren't we, Colin? <laughs> it's like, did you bring that up then? It sounds familiar. We were reading. No, I put it on Twitter one time. I, so I was, I was programming. Um, I was writing something in Rust, and I it was a for. <sighs> was it some front endy thing that was going to get wrapped up in Wism and Wasm and it was going to work in the browser. And it was like, it took me an age to get it going. But once I got it going, it literally just worked first time. And I was yeah. like, and I put something up saying, Rust is harder to, Rust is easier than JavaScript or something, something about this. And the thought was, and everyone's like, no, it's not, don't be ridiculous. I'm like, but it doesn't pretend to work. It doesn't say it's working and then all of a sudden it's you know undefined error it's like no 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 still no it's, still no it's hard to get yes. things to compile but when they do they probably work um it certainly cuts down on the ima- amount of test code you need i think because you can test the functionality rather than all those edge cases like somebody puts in the wrong type or um yeah or, or even passes null in you know those those kinds of problems go away which is really nice so um i guess in the question given this a pod, python podcast is um what do you think the lessons we might draw from rust into python might be so in some ways we already are learning the same kinds of lessons very much that kind of not pretending to work thing um so one of the big differences between python 2 and python 3 was obviously the string handling like how you convert from unicode strings to byte strings um and you could get something like a a byte string and then encode it which decoded it then re-encoded it again which was really silly um i i, I the reason i'm mentioning this is because i was part of the big effort at fanduel to take a large Python code base from Python 2 to Python 3. Um, and there was a lot of resistance to it originally. Uh, and eventually I took one of the smaller services we had just to demonstrate, like, this is how you port something to Python 3. Um, and I did. I ported it to Python 3 and instantly came up with a whole bunch of bugs uh, in the code because suddenly it wasn't pretending to work anymore. Like a whole bunch of places where it was um, expecting Unicode strings and not getting them, but just carrying on anyway. And there were, so there were, that we could have had some fantastic bugs with weird characters and things like that. Um, so I think that's one thing. And I think um, type hinting is another one, sort of moving in the same direction, like adding type hints to Python. I know it's a controversial topic. Um, I, I think that ability to kind of, when you know what a type what type something is to be able to sort of lock that down or at the very least annotate it and test against it um, is a really big plus. And you start to see that yeah, sometimes I might want Python's full dynamic behavior. I might want an any being passed around, but other times I might actually want I might actually benefit from sort of locking things down and sort of moving a little bit away from duck typing and more towards like you're meant to pass one of these in, and if you don't, then it's a bug. Um, so yeah, I, I was, I went, um, head over heels from Java's static type system into Python's dynamic type system. Absolutely loved it. Just a wash with it's all sorts of anonymous types flying around, you know, it's like, it, I, but I loved it because it's like, I, I can put whatever I like in this list. I don't need to declare what type it is. They don't need to be a subclass of each other or anything like that. Uh, the thing I've learned from Rust is that you can have a static type system that's also really powerful. Um, so yeah, and you, as well as locking things down 
or enabling things sort of broadly. I, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, one of the things I found absolutely astounding with Rust was that there's this sort of global implementation of, I might get this the wrong way around. I think it's a global implementation of the from method. And it basically says anything that knows how to convert itself using into, uh, into something else, that destination type now gets a from method that will just call that into on the, do you see what I mean? It's like you sort of, it's really difficult to describe without something on the screen. Um, but it's like you just get this this blanket implementation um, of from on your destination type um, that you've only actually implemented into on your uh, source type. Have I got that the wrong way around? I hate describing things like this. <laughs> the point being that that's done once at the, the, the highest level trait. And then yeah. it's never, it doesn't have to be re-implemented all the way down. And certainly in Java, um, and as far as I'm aware, C++, you would just have to go into every one of those types and just say, and now I'm, you know, implement this, implement this one line of code each time or, or a user macro of some kind or something like that. Um, macros is one area of Rust that I haven't really got to grips with yet. I, should, I really should. Um, the stupid Python tricks was the way that I learned Python originally that in depth. Um, and I need to get back that, that mentality with Rust and start writing stupid Rust tricks. Like not necessarily like breaking Rust, but just like, you know, how would I implement this core type and things like that and start, start really digging under the hood. And so I've, I've found it, one of the reasons I found Rust hard to learn, um, apart from the fact it is just a tricky language, is because it's been a while since I properly learned a new language that's especially a really different language. And... I've got that inner perfectionist all the time going, you must understand this completely before you move on. And it took me a long time to start going, okay, I've got that working. Now I can move on to the next thing and it kind of, you know, build a broad understanding and then start to dive down into the depths. Um, I'm just not, just not very good at that anymore. Well, it's tough to remain playful as you learn a lot because you just see where the bodies are buried and you know, you almost want to be like, is that, you know, what's the tipping point of naive versus, well, I'm just going to, you know, see what works. Yes. Yeah. Very true. There, there feel like a lot of edge cases in Rust as well. Just occasionally you'll learn something that works in one context and not in another. Um, I don't know if that's just me, um, but it, yeah, it, it's been a journey. I've now got to the point where I feel I, I reach for Rust now with certain types of problem. Um instead of Python. And I'm just like, I know I can write this in Rust and it won't take me too long. Um, the tooling is really good. The It's really, oh, that's another thing Python could really learn from Rust is distribution. I know packaging is a tricky topic, but it's like I also, I can compile a Rust program for different platforms and just distribute the binary. Um, and again, there's there's been so many attempts to do that in Python um, for different platforms or sort of limited sets of platforms and things. Um, and it's such an important thing for client-side software. And I mean, at the end of the day, service, server software is client-side software to, to your ops people as well, isn't it? So it's, it just, just makes getting stuff installed easier. Somebody told me a while ago that, that containers solved this problem, but I, I fundamentally disagree with that, given, given how many command line tools and things like that there are out there in the world. I think in that packaging thing, there's also something about the size of the, the thing, the, the binary you create. It's not just in disk space. So it's five megabytes or five fifty k or you know five hundred. It doesn't matter because disk is kind of cheap. But then when you run it, if it's sixty megabytes of RAM in memory, yeah, persistent for doing almost nothing, that's where I think Python's got 
a bit of a problem in that you can't run lots and lots of little agent servers agent services just sitting there on a you know a, a vps with half a gigabyte of ram you've like two of those and you've used a fifth of it it's like no 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 no. it has to be it has to be small so i think that's where yeah the the native the truly native you know single binary thing comes in um anyway that's cool the thing i see i'm interested in is the pi 3 the way people are writing pi 03 the, the the way people are writing modules in rust and then wrapping them in a, a, yeah. a small um foreign function interface layer which then you can then import it as your python module so i mean that's um from the time i started using python and people would say well it's too slow and you go well it isn't too slow <laughs> but if it is you take the you do the profiling you take the core thing that's taking the time and then you reimplement that in c and that's always been relatively easy whether you use a uh, sort of wrapper generator like swig which i'm sure doesn't exist anymore but it's yeah. This was C, yeah. and C to, types and C types and uh, uh, CFFI. Yeah, and, this gave you. Yeah, this was pre FFI and everything, and it used to it used to build the boilerplate for you. Um, so there was a certain amount of boilerplate with any module, and it was just a command line tool that just basically used to generate everything you needed to fill in your C function. That you know to just uh, and then that would automatically be exposed, and the types would be automatically translated between Python types and uh, and the types you'd expect in C. Um, it was uh, it was good. Like uh, Swig used to produce these really big modules. Um, I think you know. I think it died a death when. Um, am I thinking of C types? Wait. Oh, sorry, my mind's gone blank. C types is core Python, isn't it? Um, I'm there's there ah there is a, a tool for kind of um, annotating Python code so that then compiles it down to a C module directly. LXML uses it. Um, and I've forgotten the name of it. And I think I think the most successful sort of C modules that are now exposed to Python, they generally use that approach. I can't remember what it is. Scython. Scython. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Without the P. <laughs> it's like C and Python. What would that be called? Scython. Um, yeah. we can you can see that. why I was getting confused with C types, though. Yeah, can't yeah, you? Yeah, it's yeah. like, wait, am I talking about the wrong thing? Um, anyway, cool. C types is fun. There was a talk at EuroPython a few years ago where somebody was um, writing Python code to open up C types to talk to the Python DLL and then was changing some of the low-level things. So two was no longer equal to two or something along those lines. It was absolutely crazy Oh, yeah. I, I saw the Boston Python user group. I saw someone do exactly that, you know, just being like, nothing is anything. And like... <laughs> <laughs> it was like it was just sort of like wow it, it nothing yeah it, it was playing around with with C and Python and it was I can't say I followed all of it but I saw the result and I was like wow okay so where are we now <laughs> yeah you can't trust anything or anybody yeah yeah <laughs> I think that's that's the ultimate lesson yeah it pr- pretends to work um, I did have I know we're coming up on time I um, maybe a, actually a talk idea for you which maybe you've done but I would love to see a talk that is like it, when you should use Mongo with Django, where you take a standard, you know, not an Instagram clone, but something where someone will just naively build it and show how, hey, here's an example of where Mongo really shines and like how you should use it. Because I think like for me, I don't have the knowledge of when would I reach for Mongo? Like, you know, because it's more of a scaling question. But if like you could tee up in people's minds, this is what's going to kill you. Um, that would be interesting and maybe that exists but i think i actually submitted that talk idea to django con europe last year 
Um, and they accepted my other talk. We got to talk instead. to the organizers this year and see uh, <laughs> see see what's going on. Um, I'm in charge of the CFP this year, so I could totally abuse that position. Um, well, I just I just suggested it, so it's a new you know it wasn't your idea. Um, yeah, no, thank you. It's I, I you can tell I think that's a good idea. I think we <laughs> yeah. came up with it separately, it's, yeah. and it is it's yeah it's a good set of questions. I struggle um, with writing MongoDB talks because I don't want them to come across as a pitch. Um, I yeah, it's it's very. It, it, I love MongoDB, but um, I'm also aware that if I stand up on stage for half an hour and keep saying the name MongoDB again and again, then it's going to start to sound a bit like a pitch. So I tend to tend to talk more abstractly about uh, architectures or um, it, building certain types of application, and MongoDB just happens to be in the in the background. Right. I mean, it's really uh, a scaling yeah. talk. I mean, we I feel like Carlton and I often try to push guests on, like scaling is interesting, right? Because at a certain point, you prototype anything, but you know, will it scale? And to the extent you can have someone who's been in the trenches, who's just like, I can tell you right now what's going to go wrong. I mean, you know, you listen to the the David Kramer Century talk, that's sort of, they're trying to get the tooling at some point to be like, you know, we're all doing the same thing over and over and over again, whether you realize it or not. And if somebody or some AI can tell you, hey, like, there's an N plus one problem, you might want to know about that. Or like, hey, like, maybe a non-relational would really help you out here. Yeah. Um, and they, I mean, David's been through the trenches and that one as well. It's, uh, they've gone through multiple sort of scaling stages. Um, because at one point they were storing everything in Postgres and then, uh, it, they, they, they hit a point where they had to then re-architect all the way, the way they stored all of their data because it just couldn't scale anymore. Um, and I think they've done that twice, maybe three times. I mean, probably in an ongoing, like, uh, you know, uh, evolution now for um, for keeping keeping track of their scaling problems. But that's a really nice problem to have when it's, well, you know, sure. you're having to scale because right. you've got loads of paying customers. Um, that's a pretty good situation to be in. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is one of them. MongoDB is web scale, right? It's, uh, it's, built, it's built in. I have a T-shirt somewhere uh, <laughs> with that written on the front. Um, the other, the other, but it's, the yeah, other slogan we sharding. haven't had in the show yet is stash the hash. <laughs> stash the hash. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, carry on. You've got what you've got. <laughs> but it's got sharding built in, which is, you know, and, and but there are some limitations with that. You need to be careful about how you shard your data, like what you choose as a sharding key. And that's true of I think any sharding solution as well. So maybe that's something that could be abstracted out into a talk. It's just like, how do you scale when you can't store all your data on a single machine or a single single cluster? Um, I'll, I'll have to give that some more thought. Really appreciate the input. It's always nice to have somebody suggest ideas for talks. <laughs> it's always easier to project on someone else your own problems, you know? But one of my uh, most successful talks about Python packaging um, was literally just me sitting next to somebody in a sprint, somebody much more experienced than I was. And he was just, tearing his hair out over trying to package something. And he said, why won't somebody just tell me how to do this? And I, I thought, I could write that talk. <laughs> so I wrote an opinionated guide. And uh, yeah, that's been hugely successful. I got my job because of that. My manager loved that talk. It solved a particular packaging problem that he had. And so, um, yeah, he was very open to me joining MongoDB. Uh, when, yeah. when, when the, uh, well, there you go. So when do, when do you reach for Mongo? Like that's... That's what I want to know. When do I reach? For no, no, Django? sorry. So the, 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 the Django, the Django Con talk. When, when to reach? Yeah. You know, when to reach? Okay. Or yeah. whatever. Carlton, do you have your talk all set for May? I mean, it's coming up. I know you're. I've, you know, you're. I've a, got my. I've got my. Dish. You pro, 
You pretend that you haven't worked on it at all and like you've done it six months in advance. I've got my top secret um, proposal idea on the brew. Um, it's simmering <laughs> away there. So I've got till the end of February to get the, the abstract nice and tight. Um, I've got the idea whether I you know get accepted or I don't know whether it's a good idea even if I do is uh, yet to be seen. But um, Awesome. I, I look forward to seeing the proposal. Is, uh, yeah, I'm, I look for, forward to seeing... Uh, lots of proposals <laughs> from many people um, it's it's early days we only opened a few days ago so it's like there's there's a few proposals in there which is nice but we need more i believe i put it in the Django newsletter that came out friday as we record um, i'll keep putting it in there but i'm pretty ah. sure i put it in i mean clearly didn't awesome, drive that you. many traffic but <laughs> <laughs> we had some but it's like it's all cfps are the same i've been through this before it's like they, it's um uh yeah, they, they, they all come in on the last couple of days. So I'm not too worried. I may be too calm. I'm, I'm quite a relaxed person generally. Um, okay. We'll be fine. One, Everything will be fine. One more just question on talks and talk writing is um, uh, DjangoCon uh, Europe, at least I don't, maybe DjangoCon News, they have this policy of asking to see the slides first for a kind of code of conduct review, which I'm totally supportive of. But as a speaker, right, busy working on my talk, I'm also like... If the slides existed, I'd already have given the talk. Django no, <laughs> like, US definitely didn't have that last time. Right. Well, we, we do have that at DjangoCon US. So just from uh, a you know experienced hand point of view, how do you advise coping with that sort of uh, stress of, ah, I've got to give these talks for these slides, but the slides are also a work in progress as we speak? And send in whatever you can. Right. It's it's written in, I mean, I would, would call it the small print, but it's no smaller than any of the other prints. <laughs> like, you know, it, we don't expect them to be ready. We just kind of want to see the outline of the talk. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a formality more than anything else. But I think it's also a sign of how seriously DjangoCon Europe at least takes... Uh, not, I don't mean to compare with DjangoCon US. <laughs> but, uh, it's at least a sign of how seriously we take the code of conduct and ensuring that it's an inclusive environment for everybody. Yeah. Um, and we've it's, it's just one of the many checks. We've said this a billion times on the show but like one of the things that makes a DjangoCon sort of special is you know the, the atmosphere and the environment which is you know um, built upon the foundation of the code of conduct and its enforcement there's no point in having a code of conduct and then not doing anything about it it's absolutely absolutely I, I mean people won't be able to see this on the podcast but it's like I was nodding furiously <laughs> and it's, like it's, it's the reason um, I should point out like I'm, I'm a co-chair of uh, DjangoCon Europe because my wife is the other co-chair so it's like they're probably the most dangerous thing we've done for our relationship over 20 years um, is, is, is to take on this thing together but um, it's the reason we both wanted to do it is because it's just one of the warmest friendliest like nicest environments that we visit. And I go to conferences for a living to some degree. Um, so when the opportunity came up to bring that community to a city that we love, like I just absolutely love living in Edinburgh. Um, the, it, you know, we couldn't really turn it down, although I really would have liked to. Say, like, <laughs> I never wanted to be a co-chair of a conference. Um, but if I did, it would be this conference. It's, it's going to be awesome. It's already looking really, really good. I'll have to... Um... I was going to say, Jeff Triplett has, for the US one, has put out a list of talks I'd like to see that he does sort of annually. I maybe I, I probably have enough ideas I'd put one out for people. I mean, because the other one, if anyone's listening, I'm fascinated with the idea of starter projects. Um, and as ever, like, where do you draw the line? So for Django, like, I'm like, the problem is it's only kind of an independent person or a consultant who's in a position where they're doing this all the time. Most people just drop into a new, you know, an existing code base. 
But like, what are you know? What are the? I mean, I have a forum post like on third-party packages, which you know, top ten that you want. But like, what can we all agree on? Like, where does it all become? You know, where does it all diffuse? I feel like we can keep pushing that out in terms of like, okay, right. Well, we need you know, Django all author, you know, there's a whole bunch of things. Like, I'm always curious where that line is because that keeps moving. But um, uh, because I'm thinking, I think about this in terms of I have this Django X starter project, which is intentionally extremely basic, um, but it's designed to sit between that and cookie cutter. And I get PRs that are pretty regularly like add this, add this, add this. And I'm like, well, I use that and I would, but I don't, I'm not as confident. Like I'm deliberately keeping it. Like, I feel like there's room above it, but before we get to, you know, my before we get becomes a custom subjective thing. So I'm I'm always curious how people do that. But very people, very few people are in a position to do that. Is the challenge I think. Yes. Yeah, that's true. I um, this that was just an idea for anybody who wants to take it up. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah I should point yeah. out we we have a list of ideas on the DjangoCon Europe website as well. In fact, it's one of my bits of advice when I gave that talk about getting on the stage is like, go and look at the CFP guide page and they will usually have a list of topics that they want to see talks on. Um, so uh, it's a good start. Uh, those are pre-approved, right? It's that, that, That's what the organizers <laughs> already thought of that they'd like to see see talks about. So uh, anybody who's a new speaker looking for an idea, like, definitely check Why Mark Smith is great. Why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't allowed to put that in the page. Right. <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, anyway, if you are listening at home, you've got any doubts, just send, just, you know, just put in your talk idea because whatever you're excited to talk about, other people will be excited to listen to. And it's as simple as that. It's, you you know, just, just submit. That's absolutely true. And um, it doesn't matter how nervous you are when you give the talk, there will be a round of applause at the end and people will come up and tell you how much they enjoyed the talk. Um, even if they have to pick out one thing from the middle that, that they found valuable, it's like they will come up and tell you, and it's a great way to meet new people at a conference. So that's, uh, yeah, it, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. I was not a natural public speaker, but um, after giving my first talk, it was like, oh, I'm going to continue doing this um, because uh, I didn't feel like that before I got on stage. But after I got off the stage, I was like, yeah, I have to do this again. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, nobody's there to take you down a peg. Every, I think everyone there appreciates how much work it is, how difficult it is and so yeah nobody nobody's there to tear you down yeah oh we look forward to seeing you in edinburgh in uh, in may all right it, anything else is there any last minute things you want to say yeah. before we sign off mark it's your last chance yeah, i had a feeling you were going to ask me that and i'd been saving up like encouraging people to submit a talk okay and i just did it so it's like no i have nothing you took the to words say. right out of my mouth <laughs> <laughs> all right well Thank you. Thank you for coming on. It's a real pleasure to meet you. I've I've know of your work and I've seen your talks, but first time I've got a chance to connect. So Yeah, it's been awesome. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. So as ever, Djangochat.com. We are on Mastodon now. Um, and we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.